Hello there, dear listener, and welcome to Mother Love, a podcast grown and hatched by Healthy Mothers, Healthy Babies, the Montana Coalition. This space was created to promote healing, connection, and shared wisdom through stories. When it comes to parenting, no one should go it alone. On Mother Love, we see you, we hear you, we're in this together. Because this episode in particular has really difficult parts, we need to take a moment to let you know that we discuss infant loss in this episode, and many parts of Micah's story are truly heartbreaking. Some of them include vivid physical descriptions that are really hard to hear. While we don't want to discourage you from listening, we actually think it is really important for more people to listen to stories like these. We do want to offer you a heads up so that you can make a decision about where and when to listen and allow your feelings to flow. Micah Fisk is here to share her story with us. I want to go on and on about how brave she is, about the strength she exudes, about how she's a survivor. But I know firsthand that she would give up every single part of that description to not have gone through what she's gone through. So instead, I'm just going to thank her for being here. Her story has so much to offer, and we're incredibly grateful to have her with us today. If you are a listener who has experienced similar things, Micah's story will help you feel less alone and may give you hope for life after loss. If you have loved ones who've gone through difficult and painful times on their parenting journeys, Micah offers tips on how to respectfully respond and offer support. Thank you for opening your heart. Thank you for your time and attention. Thank you for your love of mothers. Welcome, Micah. I grew up with a little sister who has diabetes. Um, It's type 1 diabetes. So type 1 is an autoimmune. Um, It's not something we do to our own bodies. It's not something we can prevent. It's a genetic thing. Our immune systems attack part of our pancreas. We no longer produce insulin. You have this disease. Um, And she was diagnosed in 1996 when she was four. I was diagnosed then in 2006, right before I turned 16. So with autoimmune diseases, lots of times they stick together. So if you have one, most of the time you're going to have another one. Um, I was just going into high school and as girls, we, you know, that comes with lots of things like acne and Mm -hmm. weird periods and all the things. So on a just kind of random trip to the OB or gynecologist or whatever, um, we were like, I have acne. It's a problem. And he very randomly says, oh, you're type one diabetic. You have acne. You have polycystic ovarian syndrome. Without a test, mm-hmm. without confirmation, nothing just, even if you didn't have it, we'd still give you birth control. This is how we would treat you anyway, so this is what we're going to do. And that was uh, accompanied with the very offhand comment of, at some point when you want to have kids, you'll probably need help. Awesome way to deliver news yeah. to someone that young. Right. How did you feel in that moment? Do you remember? Um, I felt just kind of taken aback. Like... Our pediatric endocrinologist often used uh, the fear-mongering of, if you ever want to have kids someday, you need to take care of yourself. It was said it a lot. And he is, like, one of our favorite people. It's just something doctors do that I think is terrible. But 
like doesn't make him a terrible person. I love him. But right. um, so it was kind of just like piling on to that. Mm-hmm. It wasn't it was just a thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it made me kind of angry. But more about the fact that he said it less than less right. about like, oh, I might need help someday. Because at that time, it's hard to envision or like, right. even think about what that would look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, very young. And then my endocrinologist felt like I saw him a couple months later and he was like, you don't have that. It's fine. So cool. <laughs> years later, <laughs> I um, met my husband and we decided to have kids and um, we I got off birth control and like three weeks later we were pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, so then in my mind, I'm going, oh, I must not have that. Right. Because we got pregnant really easy. It wasn't, I mean, the pregnancy itself was really rough. I had hyperemesis. And then I got influenza, which put me into early labor at an emergency C-section. Because I had influenza and my uterus was infected, I didn't, like, cramp down and stop bleeding. Mm -hmm. So I hemorrhaged during my C-section. And... It was scary. I mean, the whole thing was scary. Yeah. And, you know, for a while that we were very, like, adamant that we were only having one because of how scary that experience Mm -hmm. was. And then started having a lot of anxiety about Emerson growing up alone, Mm -hmm. not having a sibling his age. So when we decided to start trying for a second, we thought it would happen really easy. And it didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, And... It was a really just a very hard thing to walk through because no one really like leads you through it. Mm-hmm. And we have this misconception as young women that getting pregnant is easy, mm-hmm. that it just happens because we you all you hear about is accidental teen pregnancies and mm-hmm. like all these things. And yeah. No one says how hard it is. I know. I remember we had a little bit of trouble when we were first trying and. What I remember specifically is looking around, and first of all, I felt like all I ever saw were babies mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and pregnant people everywhere. Oh, yeah. And then I also felt like um, there's a weird thing that happens where you can look around and be like, well, every single person in this world that I know has been born. So, right. like, there just seems to be evidence everywhere that it's not that hard. <laughs> yeah. And. And you're like, so why, if that's the case, like, why, if our human population is this big, Mm -hmm. am I having trouble getting pregnant? Like, it just seems really, really crazy. And mentally, I think that that game plus, can you talk a little bit about what people with secondary infertility often experience in terms of this response of, well, you have one, you should Mm -hmm. be grateful for that. Oh, man. Did you encounter that? We did a little, and I think mostly internally, Mm -hmm. I experienced that. Mm -hmm. Um, So we, you know, you can't even get in to see a fertility specialist in in this area if you haven't been trying for a year. Wow. Because there's not enough of them Mm -hmm. to see someone. So, or at least that's how it was when we were experiencing this. Mm -hmm. Um, So we tried alone for a year. And I wasn't having any periods like my. And so when I finally did get in to see someone, she was like, well, your uterus is shredded. 
Like you have no lining. Whoa. And also you do have polycystic ovarian syndrome. And so you're and not that ovulating. Was news at that moment. You didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like a confirmation of this like offhanded thing that I had completely dismissed. Mm-hmm. And it was very like, oh, yeah, I have all those symptoms. Of course I have that. Yeah. Like maybe I should have known. And then that's a whole different like self mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. But yeah. So, I mean, it, it, the whole, like, I have one child, I should be grateful. Um, that I think came more after we tried fertility treatments and like, it's really, it, it's really hard because it's hormones, right? So like, think about you have like your period and you get pms and you're cranky and it's like that all the time. I would not, my family wouldn't survive. We wouldn't. Be, right. It's like, like, I mean, yeah, I, know, I, say, I say, I say that in a joking way, but I cannot imagine how hard that was because I basically still wish there was like the red tent like, oh, possibility absolutely. where I could just be like, okay, it's a good idea for me to go away now right, yeah. and not have any sound <laughs> light or interaction with other humans during this time. Like, my people in my life close to me are like, it's on the calendar. Like, Mm -hmm. Claire will lose her mind during this time. Yes. Um, But so I can't, I can't imagine doing that. For how long did you experience that with the treatments? Um, We did, so it's like you start gradually and then it just kind of ramps up. Mm -hmm. So you start, we started with just like, just oral hormones and nothing happened and then we did heavier doses of that and then you do like a different delivery format of that and then then you get into like injections Mm -hmm. and so we did fertility for probably a little over a year and it was like um we ended it after doing, we did three rounds of IUI, which is interuterine insemination. Mm-hmm. And it's like the step right before IVF. Mm-hmm. So we did three rounds of that and none of them took. Mm-hmm. And that was just devastating because not only is it like hard on your body emotionally and physically, but then toss in that I'm type one diabetic and it's like this balancing act, right? So insulin is a hormone that's how you treat type one and you have to have really good levels uh, blood sugar levels for a long period of time in order to have a healthy pregnancy Mm -hmm. and your fertility hormones make it exponentially harder to have good blood sugars so it's like a balancing act of how long can I sustain hormone usage before my blood sugar levels are too high to make this not sustainable so that was hard on my body wow and then it's hard financially because it's so expensive totally so um it was just like too overwhelming at that point and we just decided we're gonna quit doing this Mm -hmm. and give ourselves a break yeah and we didn't like go back on birth control or anything like that Mm -hmm. but we stopped trying Mm -hmm. and yeah, it was just kind of an emotional roller coaster. The whole thing is. And I mean, those circumstances are so hard, let alone 
um, if you if your mood is affected by the hormones, mm-hmm. and then I imagine that the blood sugar regulation on top of that is like mm-hmm. this thing that we do where it's sort of like so easy to self-blame if you don't keep things perfect all the time then it's like every month I bet that you were having this like what did I do wrong you know which I think is common but in your case that must have been just so heightened yeah so as a as a diabetic Uh you do a lot of your own medical care Mm -hmm. so I mean I go in and see an endocrinologist every three months for testing and like just to check in and make sure everything's okay But every day you make multiple decisions that are life and death decisions potentially. Mm -hmm. So all the time. Mm -hmm. And you really have to trust your body Mm -hmm. and understand the cues it's giving you. So like, oh, I feel a little shaky. I'm probably low. I need to take some sugar. Or um, I'm feeling sleepy for no reason what's going on oh my blood sugar is high I need to adjust this and um so it's really is this like very self-awareness thing yeah and then you throw infertility on there and you're like I can't trust my body anymore oh right that makes sense like my body is not giving me the cues that it should be Or the cues that it's giving me aren't true to what my symptoms are. Or, like, um, when we were trying on our own for that year, I thought I was pregnant multiple times. And then it would be a no. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you lose the trust in your body. So that was a big struggle for me. Yeah. Um, And honestly, I think if I hadn't found the ULA community Mm -hmm. that I had... I don't think I would have come out of that sane. Yeah. Um, because Ula was just all about community and trusting our bodies and all that stuff. So yeah. it just, yeah. Yeah. So how was fertility it? Fertility was hard. Yeah. yeah. How was it um, on your relationship? How did you guys get through oh, that? God. You know, I'm so hard. I know. I know that that is such a hard challenge when all of that is going on. What did you find was helpful? Um, I don't honestly like I think we just kind of trudged through it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't I don't think there was one thing that we did that like helped us. It was just like the knowledge that we were both suffering through this. It wasn't just one of us was, you know, that was really important. I have an exceptionally um, caring partner. Um, he's significantly older than I am. <laughs> and um, he had already gone through, like, hard parenting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, one of his daughters was born premature and, like, all that stuff. And so I think... He was just more emotionally ready to deal with my craziness than someone my age would have been if this was like their first go around with kids. Yeah. Let's not call it craziness, please. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) My emotional instability. Here we go. It's a little bit better. (laughs) I mean. Your emotional experience of something incredibly difficult. Oh, man. It was. Not crazy. Same. Oh, sure. Yeah. 
<laughs> I suppose I don't have the negative connotation to that word that yeah. some people might. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I just want you to be careful to use kind language sure. on yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that's wonderful that he was able to have, that he had that capacity going in. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure that was helpful. And then tell me about, you know, maintaining mothering Emerson because were you, did you yeah. talk with him about it? We did. Emerson uh, was about two, he was like two or three uh-huh. when we started all that. Okay. And he, so he was at the age when he started asking for a sibling. And all of my siblings live here with all their kids. So he has seen his cousins get siblings. Um, And that was hard. And he asked us specifically once, he was like, why do I only ever get cousins and James gets brothers? Mm -hmm. And we were like, "Uh, we're trying on that. Mm -hmm. You know, like, so he was aware but I don't think it really affected him that first go around. Yeah. Um, that was one of the, the factors in us deciding to stop trying Mm -hmm. was I felt like I was missing out on stuff. Like in my pursuit of another child, I felt like I was failing Emerson. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the reasons we stopped. Yeah. It just all got to be too much. Yeah, it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we stopped trying, and then we were kind of like in the wind for a year. Just, and it kind of was great because I just had this like amount of time to recuperate, and I kind of just came to a place where I was at peace with only having one, and that it was okay, and it opened up an opportunity to do other things with him that maybe we wouldn't be able to do with multiple children. And I just had come to a place of acceptance. And after an ULA class one day in like early December, like 2019, um, one of my co-teachers, Katie, grabbed me after class and was like, hey, you don't talk about having other kids anymore. Mm-hmm. And it was something I was very open with right. throughout like teaching classes, I was like, I'm on hormones, guys. I'm going to cry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like, or I'm on these hormones. It makes me a little off balance. If I trip, it's okay. This mm-hmm. is why. Um, it wasn't something I hid. It was something I was very open with. So she noticed when I stopped talking about it and she asked me, are you guys still trying to have kids or are you like, is that not something you're doing anymore? And I said, you know, I think we're just at a place we're at peace with only having one mm-hmm. and it's okay. And Um, but it put a little like weird bug in my head about, oh, I haven't, you know, yeah, I have polycystic ovarian syndrome. I don't have periods all that often. I'm not on birth control that forces me to have a period, but it made me think like, oh, you haven't had one since October. Oh. And the next day I went and took a pregnancy test and I was pregnant. Whoa. Yeah. It was nuts. Let's talk about that moment. Yeah. I, um, Dave works in the mornings. So he usually calls me in the morning to like check in and just say, Hey, how'd your morning go? Did Emerson get to school? Okay. Blah, blah, blah. And he called me and I, um, on the phone couldn't, I couldn't just not say anything. So I was like, um, I took a pregnancy test and he was like, Oh really? (laughs) Why? Right. Like totally like that's offhanded. Yeah. And I said, um, I'm pregnant. And he was, you know, like, 
no, you're not. And I was like, I am. And he's like, oh, my God. And, you know, you could tell he got choked up. Yeah. And we were, you know, he came home and it was mm. a big thing. And yeah. um, then you go through the whole, you have to go to the doctor and have it confirmed and have an ultrasound and have it confirmed and all the things. And where are we at with COVID at this moment? It was just like hints and inklings right like um like rumor yeah it was like it had started in china Mm -hmm. okay and we hadn't really gotten it over here yet Mm -hmm. and um yeah so at that point COVID hadn't factored in Mm -hmm. but we were you know very shocked that we were pregnant and we were you know because this was no fertility treatments Mm -hmm. all the things we were super excited Mm -hmm. and Um, then, you know, going into the new year, it was like February. That's when COVID really like started affecting us. Mm -hmm. Like you have to wear a mask to all your appointments. You, you know, all that. Mm -hmm. I think schools closed like shortly after that. So I was at home with Emerson, who was a kindergartner Mm -hmm. and trying to do at home school and also be pregnant and try and be like excited about this new life. And on top of that, we were talking about closing the studio temporarily. And yeah, it was like this whole, and I'm like trying to teach while pregnant and it was a whole thing. Yeah. And at the same time, my father-in-law was living with us and he was really ramping up in dementia. Oh my goodness. So we were like trying to figure out how to get him help because you couldn't get in-home help really because of COVID. Right. And it was hard to get someone into a home because of COVID. Mm -hmm. So we're just at home with my father-in-law, with Emerson, you know, the whole, the whole thing. Yeah. And we, you know, I had this, like, you know, you have to, like, find an OB and you have to find all these, this team of doctors. Mm -hmm. And for um, a diabetic, you're automatically high risk. Mm -hmm. So that means you have even more doctors Mm -hmm. and even more visits that you have to plan around COVID and all Mm -hmm. these things. Mm -hmm. And so I had, for all my pregnancies, an OB a general doctor, uh, um, they're called maternal fetal medicine specialist and MFM, um, and my endocrinologist. So there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And so during this whole COVID nonsense and all this pregnancy, and it's a lot of stuff to handle, um, but we were so happy and it was so like joyful. Totally. Yeah. Um, and and then it wasn't yeah before we go into this next part um in terms of scheduling those appointments with that entire team Mm -hmm. did you have to always meet with each of them individually or did they ever like confer and so that was a big um deciding factor of who my doctors were Mm -hmm. so my ob we um I was seeing just my regular doctor, and if I wasn't high risk, she would have handled my whole pregnancy. Okay. But because I'm high risk, I have to be with, like, an obstetrician. Mm-hmm. Um, so she recommended the OB that I saw. Mm-hmm. 
and I started seeing her. Mm -hmm. And then I have other friends who have also had high-risk pregnancies, and they had seen this other particular doctor who they recommended. And I had asked to see him, but my OB recommended that I use their in-house MFM. Um, So I ended up seeing her. Mm -hmm. And I ended up with a team of all women doctors and I was so excited. And this was like, I was like, Oh, they'll understand me and understand the experience more. And this is great. And, um, so their office is all like a, whatever, like a conglomerate. Yeah. So she, my OB and my MFM would see me, um, and the ultrasound was there. So it was like back to back type deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, that could have been a solid thing, but they left out communication with my endocrinologist, okay. my diabetic specialist. Yeah. Um, so I feel like that piece was very much missing. Yeah. And in an, in a standard situation, the MFM would handle all my diabetic changes, but I do feel like I give off me just as a person, I give off this air of like, I don't need help. Um, I'm very self-sufficient and I'm on top of things and I, um, I like to know about what's going on with the diabetic stuff. So I'm capable of making my own changes in a normal situation. Mm-hmm. But when you're in a pregnancy, it's totally different. The expectations are totally different. Um, the levels that you aim for are different and I didn't know any of that. So Um, I gave off this air of like knowing what I was doing and I'd had a previous pregnancy. So I think she assumed I was doing it. And so she didn't. So that piece was missing. Yeah. And I think it played a big role in, in our, our loss. Yeah. Yeah. That's really hard to look back on. I'm sure because Mm -hmm. of course you've developed that, spirit and that attitude of like I have control over this because that's the way you've survived and stayed safe Mm -hmm. you know your whole life is like knowing what you need to know and being able to like you said like tend to yourself in ways that work and so I'm sure that that was really disorienting to all of a sudden not be the expert in how to do things but um but then unfortunately you missed out on quality care because of that assumption. So, right. So, okay. So we have team of doctors. We have shocking, exciting new pregnancy mm-hmm. and then care continues. COVID continues to get more intense. Yeah. And talk about yeah what happened next. So the two weeks before we lost Owen, we're really crazy. This is height of COVID. It's July, 2020. Um, no one knew what was going on or how deadly this was. And everyone was very, it was very scary, right? We didn't know how it affected pregnant women. I was just going to say that that was a particularly vague area. Yeah. Yeah. And diabetics, Mm -hmm. um, was a comorbidity and all these very like unknown scary things. And I got a call one day saying, um, you've been exposed to COVID. Um, you were exposed at your, um, OB's office 
and they are closed and you are quarantined. And so I panicked because I'm two weeks away from giving birth yeah. and I am a diabetic, I'm high risk. Mm-hmm. And now I don't have access to my OB or my ultrasound technician or my MFM because they're all in the same office. And, and they didn't talk about doing like telehealth or phone consults or anything. It was like, um, the, the department, I think it was the health department called me about my quarantine and then they were like, well, you're going to have to call their office and get it figured out. Wow. And I was like, oh, okay. So called, you know, then it was like call marathon of trying to figure out what to do. Totally. And we ended up, um, I ended up having, they were like, you're going to have to go to the hospital for everything. Well, going from a private ultrasound to a to the hospital ultrasound is totally different because the hospital can't, they can't tell you anything about what's going on. They can't show you pictures. They can't do, you know, it's very like, they don't say anything. Um, the ultrasound technicians. Do you know why? And did they tell you why? Just because they're not, that's just quali- like, they're not OB or is that the hospital policy? That's hospital policy. Okay. Um, the radiologist is the only one who can read the ultrasound. So the ultrasound technicians aren't allowed to say anything. Okay. Um, and that's with any ultrasound I think mm-hmm. you get at the hospital. Yeah. But I was like, I don't, I'd rather go to this other private provider um, for my ultrasound. And they're like, well, that's fine. But then you have to go to the hospital for your NST, which is a non-stress test. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm like, fine. So that first, that first week after they closed, I went to the other place for the ultrasound and, um, they were like, wow, he's a really big baby. He's so big. Has he always been this big? And I was like, yeah, he's been big the whole pregnancy. My other son was also big. Um, Emerson was eight pounds, 13 ounces when he was born. He was 37 weeks. So big baby. And then Owen was measuring big the whole pregnancy. And they're like, wow, he's really low. He's as low as he can go. And he's very big. And But he looks healthy. And then I went over to the hospital for my non-stress test and it was just kind of a mess like they weren't expecting me so I had to go up to um, the women and children's floor they put me in a room hooked me up to the monitors and then kind of forgot I was there so it's a 20-minute test and I was there for two hours and do you want me to talk about that I do want you to talk about that. And I, and I also just want to acknowledge like how scary that must have been Mm -hmm. for you to be sent all over the hospital (laughs) during COVID when you're already like a high risk, part of a high risk population Mm -hmm. and you're super pregnant. Yeah. So while I was sitting in the room for this test, it's like you sit there and do nothing and just wait. And they monitor his heart rate and his movement and make sure he's moving enough times. And you're in a regular, and, like, standard hospital room by yourself. Just yep. so we have a... Yep. Okay. And one of the nurses kind of popped in and out the whole time. And at one point she came in and was talking on her, like, they have internet phones just on their uniforms. Mm-hmm or the scrubs, and she answered a call 
while she was in the room with me. And it was between her and another nurse. And they were talking very openly about another patient who had suffered a stillbirth. And they didn't know what to do with the body of the child. And they had um, wrapped this little baby up in a blanket and put him on a shelf somewhere. Because they didn't know what to do during COVID because the couriers between the hospital and the other facility that does the autopsies, the couriers weren't running. So they didn't know how to get this baby over there. And it was very like surreal to be sitting there with a child inside me thinking about this other mother who doesn't know where her child is. And it just felt, it was the most just out of, it just was so strange. Like this is a conversation that never should have happened in front of another patient. It's a conversation that never should have been necessary. It was very, very strange. Yeah. And I can't figure out with, there's a lot of things I can't figure out about this situation, Mm -hmm. but I can't figure out if you, if you were hooked up and you were having a non-stress test, like why in the first place were they coming in and out and why wasn't anyone just devoting like the time it took to read the test and then have you go? Mm -hmm. That's a piece that I can't figure out. And then like, was she tending to you while having that conversation in the room or she just decided to like hang out in there and have that conversation? Yeah. So they come in and out. Like usually they come in, they hook you up, they leave and they come back in 20 minutes and check the readout. Okay. Yeah. And then you're done. Yeah. But they would come in and out and they, I don't know if they didn't have an OB to come in and read the thing or if they just didn't know what they were doing mm-hmm. or what was expected of this, I'm not sure. Yeah. But like the coming in and out wasn't so like strange. It was that they didn't come in and end the test. Right. And let me leave. Right. <laughs> um, and then did they even, she, did anyone even look at the reading or they just would be like, Oh, she's still in there. <laughs> like they'd come in and like look at the screen and make sure that it was still like working. reading. Uh huh. But that was it. Okay. Yeah. It was just weird. Yeah. And eventually I was like, can I go? Yeah. Like, is this? What are we doing? What's going on? They're like, oh, I think we're just waiting to hear from your OB. And I was like, did you call her? (laughs) Because you might not hear from her if you don't mm -hmm. contact her because she doesn't know that I'm here. Right. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Like, it was just a whole thing. Yeah. And then I, you know, then I left and on my way out, the OB on call popped out and he was like, Oh, I saw your thing. It looks great. Bye. I'm like, wow. An hour and a half ago would have been nice. Right. But, you know, so at that point, that was like the most inconvenient thing that had happened to me. Right. And And then, so I left and the following week, um, so that was on a Thursday and that following Sunday we had my baby shower and did the whole thing and it was like you know it's COVID so it was just my family really mm-hmm. and um, a couple of friends like drove by and we stood outside for a little while and talked and mm-hmm. and then they left and mm-hmm. um, so that was Sunday and then Wednesday I went in for my 
next BPP and NST. So I went into the other private ultrasound place because my OB's office was still closed. Mm-hmm. And so at this point, I haven't seen my OB in like two weeks. Wow. Um, when normally at this point, right, is the point where you're going in like three times a week? Yeah. Just in a standard pregnancy? Right. But for you, would you have been going in like... Uh, yeah, I'd have been going in... That? I would have been going in probably twice a week. Yeah. Yeah. And then having these tests. Right. So um, I went in and we were doing some remodeling on the house, trying to get extra bedrooms ready. And so Dave stayed at the house to work on that. And my mom went with me to this appointment and we were in the waiting room and had a phone call with my OB saying, Hey, I think we need to schedule your C-section. Let's schedule it. So we had scheduled it for the following week. And, you know, so we're like, okay, this is going to be our last ultrasound before we have this baby. Mm -hmm. And we're getting really excited and we go in and, she starts scanning, and I immediately knew something was wrong. Yeah. Um, they usually show you the heartbeat first. Yeah. And she kind of skipped right over it and was looking at his kidneys, and she was like, um, Micah, have they said anything about his kidneys? And I was like, no, not, no, there were some talk. There was some talk about his heart, um, diabetic Babies of type 1 diabetics often develop a thicker heart wall, mm-hmm. um, and they often have an extra hole in between their ventricles. Okay. So it's stuff that usually resolves after birth. Mm-hmm. They weren't really concerned about it. We'd been reassured that he was fine. Yeah. Um, so she's looking at his kidneys, and um, she's like, well, one is looking pretty dark. One's looking pretty light, which means one's not working probably. And she's like, I'm just going to step out and call your OB. And I knew, I knew that he was gone. And it was, they, they usually will just like kind of make an excuse to leave the room. Right. Um, and when she came back, she said, I don't, I don't know how to tell you this other than to just say it, but he doesn't have a heartbeat. He's gone. Yeah. And Emily Tassoni, who I know is a friend of yours, um, when we t- did our interview, she describes that as like the split in her life. Yeah. Where it's like before that moment and then like nothing's ever Oh yeah. the same. Yeah. And your mom was there with you. Yeah. Thankfully. Yeah. And I just, you know, it's like immediately saying I need Dave. Of course. And, um, we had our OB on the phone saying, whenever you're ready, just come to the hospital. And, um, we decided just to not wait and just to go. Yeah. So, um, you know, (laughs) he got to the ultrasound room and she, the ultrasound Um, technician was like, um, do you want to look at him Mm. some more Mm. before you go? Mm. And Dave was like, no. Yeah. So. (laughs) No. Yeah. I mean, it just never, I always will cry. Of course. Um. Me too. (laughs) Right? Yeah. I'm so, I can't. It's. 
I'm so sorry. So we went over to the hospital and met our OB there. And the first thing they ask you is, um, this is horrible, but do you want an autopsy? Mm-hmm. And then that story became very personal to me. Right. At that moment. And I was like, where will you send him? And they told me. And I was like, no, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. So we decided that he would be just with us mm-hmm. and then and then to the funeral home. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we had... So this is all happening yeah. in the same day. Yeah. Like what time... We went are, in, are you in the morning was your ultrasound? Or? Yeah, I think it was like 11 in the morning. We had gone in for our ultrasound and by 3 p.m. we were in starting induction. Yeah. But because, and the way she put it was, she said, um, this is going to sound terrible, but the reason we were going to do a C-section was because we were concerned for Owen's life and now that his life isn't a concern it's safer for you to have a vaginal birth so we're gonna let you deliver him and I, I think at that point you're just so right numb that you just say okay right like, like all right you're the doctor just, get this over with like yeah what yeah um and so she explained the process to me, what we were going to do. Um, we had a Foley catheter um, to help start dilation. And my body, we were only at 35 weeks, so my body hadn't started preparing for labor. And mentally, I hadn't prepared for labor because I was expecting a C-section. Right. So I had no idea. No idea what was coming. Oh. And... Um, so we did a Foley catheter and that was 12 hours and then started Pictosin and then, then did breaking the water and active labor. And it was just kind of a surreal experience. We were there overnight and, you know, you can't sleep. If you've ever been through labor, you know, you don't sleep. <laughs> Yeah, no. Um, so, did they offer an epidural? I'm curious about that part. So, this was the thing. They, when I had Emerson, they did obviously an epidural for the C-section, but because I hemorrhaged and because I was in so much distress, they pumped me so full of pain medication that I don't remember the first 24 hours of his life. Oh man. So when we decided to have Owen, um, they were like, we can give you whatever you want. You do not have to feel any of this. And all I could think was, this is the only time I'm going to get with him. Yeah. And I want to remember everything. Yeah. So it's very, very specific. Out. Yeah. I want nothing. Yeah. So I had an epidural right before they broke my water. Okay. But up until that point, I yeah. didn't have anything yet. That makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, what a difficult decision, but that I, makes sense to me. Yeah. There was just this very, like, it's like you're in this other world. Yeah. And it's all very clear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
and I just knew yeah. I didn't want to forget anything and also just needed to be present for all of it. Yeah. We talked yesterday about that it's almost like part of the ceremony of mm-hmm. needing to have a connected experience before. Yeah. The the way the thing I read afterwards, um, I read an article that another mother had written and she said, um, I couldn't do anything for my child, but I could do this. Yeah. I could bring him into the world. Yeah. So we did. Yeah. And I had just this weird night of, you know, pseudo labor and then had an epidural and we, it was like the doctor came in and said, um, you've responded as well as possible to all the other things we've done. I think this is going to go pretty fast. Most women labor for about 45 minutes. And so I think that's what you're going to have. And then we'll, then you'll have him in your arms. Mm -hmm. Do you want us to put him directly on your chest or do you want us to take him out of the room? Mm -hmm. And obviously I wanted him right away. Yeah. And, um, then it did not go that way. Mm -hmm. Um, that's a big promise to make 45 minutes. Yeah. Because when you're in labor and when you're giving birth, you're counting down every mm-hmm. minute to get through that pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was three hours mm-hmm. of active labor. And then, but the final half an hour, we delivered his head and then he was stuck. Mm-hmm. And because he had been dead, um, for a considerable amount of time, um, he had no muscle tone. Mm-hmm. So, and because he's gone, he can't move right. to help himself through the birth canal. Right. And so he was lodged under my pelvic bone or my pubic bone or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and it got to the point where my OB knew she couldn't, she didn't know what to do anymore. Mm-hmm. We had tried rolling me over to my knees. Oh, my gosh. And that didn't work. Came back to my back. That wasn't working. Um, And eventually they had a second OB come in and two other nurses. And the nurses were on, like, elevated stools on either side of the bed with both, like, fists, like, pushing down. And um, both OBs had hands inside pulling him out. And I think if it had gone on any longer, they were going to have to break him Mm -hmm. to get him out. And, I mean, I think that would have been, I mean, just horrific. Yeah. And the whole thing was horrific. So even on top of that would have been, you know. Um, So eventually, after much, much, um, he was born and... um, we, he was born at 5.17, and he was 9 pounds and 4 ounces, and he was 21 inches long, and he was beautiful, and he had black curly hair, just, he looked exactly like his brother, it was nuts. 
and then it's like you go through all these things right like here's this baby but now my body is also still trying to deliver placenta and like this whole thing um and eventually I you know came back to it and was able to hold him and be with him and my mom was in the room with us the whole time um and she had like a terms of endearment moment with the doctor in the hallway going what the was that yeah and he told her he's like i i have no idea what that was and in hindsight we probably would have done a c-section and um then it's like then you're dealing with covid stuff so the hospital policy for delivering moms was one visitor and we were being treated as a bereavement so we were allowed two um and my mom had some conversation with the nurses and said their son is going to come upstairs and meet his brother and I'm not leaving for that so there's going to be an extra person and then also their pastor is coming up to pray with them and I'm not leaving for that so there's going to be two extra people and we're having a photographer come and if you have a problem with that please take yourself off our case and find me nurses who don't have a problem with it Mm -hmm. and they were both wonderful and um they were like we will ask forgiveness later yeah and so we had i'm so thankful for that moment i mean that obviously Mm -hmm. that's what should have happened at that moment but Mm -hmm. i cannot imagine if there would have been resistance like Mm -hmm. we had some resistance after the fact yeah but mm -hmm. right Yeah. yeah 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 So, poor little Emerson. Mm-hmm. Um, he had been with my sisters mm-hmm. um, during all of that. Mm-hmm. And he didn't know what was going on. Like, we didn't tell him. We wanted us to tell him that and yeah. not them to tell him that. Right. So, my sisters brought him up to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And Dave went down to... They were, like, in the emergency room entrance. Okay, yeah. And he took Emerson and sat down and just said, um, I, for context, a, a couple months before that, a friend of ours had lost, had had a miscarriage. And we had to explain to him, the way we explained it was, some babies don't get to come all the way. Mm-hmm. And be with us. Yeah. Sometimes they go back to heaven before they come to earth. Mm-hmm. And we don't get to keep them. Yeah. And so Dave told him, mm-hmm. um, mommy had the baby, but he doesn't get to come home with us. Yeah. And he's gone. Yeah. And Dave, Dave still to this day, like if Emerson is crying, he's like, PTSD straight back to that moment for sure and it was like it, it's like the wailing you know like 
that deep grief. Yeah. And he just kept saying, no, no, no. Just and then eventually they came up to the room. And... And he's like, three? No, at this point, he's six. Okay. Yeah. So he is... I mean, Emerson is a very, like, emotionally aware, and he's very capable of explaining his emotions. Oh, that's because he has um, his mama. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, which is a huge blessing. Mm-hmm. Um, but in that moment, he was just, I mean, just devastated. And, um, yeah, we've got just some extremely beautiful photographs mm-hmm. of that like of that grief mm-hmm. it was i mean it seems a little strange to call them beautiful but they're beautiful i mean they're honest right mm-hmm. and and i think the most beautiful images that we keep are honest that's what's beautiful about them yeah it was um just yeah so he he was there our pastor came up and um, you know, one of the, I feel like the modern Christian church has a better grasp of loss and grief, um, maybe, but it was, I know you mentioned that, uh, the photographer who came up was a dear friend, um, Emily and, um, you mentioned that she was pretty nervous because that situation could go one of two very different ways. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And luckily our pastor is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And he, one of the very first things he said was, um, I need you to know that this is not part of God's plan. Mm-hmm. Like God does not plan to give us children and just to take them away from us. Mm-hmm. And, um, that was a big thing through our grief, like through counseling and stuff was that, um, like it can just be shitty. Yep. Like it doesn't have to, you, if you decide to learn a lesson or decide to find purpose through grief, that's wonderful, but it doesn't always happen that way. And you do not have to learn anything from it. Nope. And there is not a purpose always to to what it is no and actually when I've been through really hard situations and that has been it's like I don't want to learn anything from this and Mm -hmm. I don't want to take away anything from this because honestly I'll like the lesson Mm -hmm. is not worth it to me to have lost my baby or to see yeah my baby in intense pain or suffering like yep no thank you I'll learn that lesson a different way. <laughs> right. No you kidding. Know, yeah. I'm not going to spend time like making fruit from this. Y- yeah. So. Yep. I think that that's really important because I think also we were talking about like what was helpful, what was hurtful when your family was going through this in terms of what your medical team did in terms of what your yeah friends and family said and did and like we can all all day say everybody meant well or whatever or they did the best they could but right. the truth is like we don't need most words that are said they're said to comfort the people who are saying them absolutely and i think that 
like we, you know, Micah is going to be on our panel discussion at the mental health conference, which by the time this podcast is out will have already happened. But Mm -hmm. one of the focuses of that is like, I really was hoping you could share like, and we're getting close to out of time now, but was, I was just hoping we could spend a little bit of time focusing on like things that were seem small, but were actually really harmful that are common and then things like we were talking yesterday and I this phrase just stuck in my mind so much of like the community that rose up and you called it this underbelly of compassion yeah where there's like a grief community ready and intact but sort of like under the radar which I kind of wish it wasn't Mm -hmm. that way but all of a sudden when you need support like to find out that there's this network of people who understand what is helpful yeah and how they can help in subtle ways that aren't like you know disruptive to your healing yeah talk about that so during our labor with owen um we were told there's a grief counselor who comes in do you want to see her and we're like yeah that's that's fine she can come in and um she's very lovely but I feel like the the method of comfort that they offer you is not appropriate at that moment in time. So it was like, um, we're going to get a box for you. There's a, a man here in town who makes the, the beautiful, like, wooden keepsake boxes. They're like, we don't have any right now, but we're going to have one made. And then we'll get that to you. And But there's all these quilt squares that go in the bottom of them. So here's a stack of a bunch of quilt squares. And you need to pick one that goes with whatever you were going to do for his nursery or something. And then also your son is going to want to take home something from the hospital. So he can't take his brother home. So here's a bunch of quilts. Like pick which one he would like best. And then... Also, here's a bunch of teddy bears, and please pick one for him. And um, here's some literature, but it's like um, the children's version of Heaven is for Real. And um, here's a pamphlet about how men grieve differently from women. And um, <laughs> the, the listeners like, can't see my face right now, but I wish you could because what? Just like, yeah. So all these things, and I'm like, I'm having contractions. Like, <laughs> Uh, no like just pick one and bring it in like I don't need to pick one I don't need to even know that there were different options just pick one and bring it in like that's it or how about come in and ask me some questions about my kid and then you can go and pick a quilt and bring one in because no one's gonna care yeah or how about you have the the most like even tiniest fundamental understanding of active grief mm -hmm. because that would be helpful Right. In this moment Mm -hmm. in time. Yeah. So my husband described it as, um, he's like, it was all really nice, but it just felt like shitty consolation prizes. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. Um, So. And you can't think about anything. No. Like, I I imagine it was hard for, like, to maintain your autonomic nervous system. Like, I am blinking. I am Mm -hmm. breathing. My heart is beating. I am doing this thing right now. Like when someone even asks you like anything about anything, you're like, um, no. Right. So, and then, you know, it's like, 
this this very sweet woman sits down next to me at, on like next to the bed and takes my hand and says, I just want you to tell me your story. Tell me Owen's story. And I'm like, and this is, let's be clear. Yeah. This is when you're in labor. Yes. This is not after no. you've had Owen. No. He's still inside me at this point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we're like, uh, <laughs> the story that just abruptly ended, that one. Like, and that is ending right now at this moment. Right. I'm so sorry that that is what happened. Yeah. And then they give you like a list like a little like list with names and phone numbers of counselors who are available in in the area. Mm-hmm. But it's like way outdated. And and because I was in a unique situation. So I did a lot of work with how our body processes trauma, how we hold on to trauma, how it affects us. Um like coping mechanisms that you can Mm-hmm. used mm-hmm. so I knew there was all of this waiting for me mm-hmm. but the average woman who goes through that does not know that this is out there and what are you going to do sit down and google grief groups available as you're like losing your child no yeah or even like anytime soon after that you're mm-hmm. not going to be doing anything but like barely just trying survive to survive yeah yeah yeah. yeah. So it was very like, it was like they tried, but they missed the mark. Yeah. And, um, and then I had, you know, another unique situation where, um, a friend of my mom's is one of the, was one of the funeral directors and he was able to come to the hospital. Mm-hmm. And so when we relinquished Owen's body, mm-hmm. it was too simple. We knew. Yeah. And my mom took him and rode in the car mm-hmm. to the funeral home. That must have been so important, my guy. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't want him to be alone. Of course not. And and then a beautiful thing, they opened the funeral home for my siblings so that they could go in and see him because mm-hmm. they weren't allowed to come into the hospital. Right. So, yeah, so I have photos of them with him. Mm-hmm. And, but it was just, like, so that was a unique thing that was healing for us that right. we were able to have that not everyone gets. And, um, you know, but then the following day you get questions. So... It's a million things that they want you to make decisions about. Like, um, do you want testing done on your placenta? Yes, I do want testing done. I want to know as much as I can, of course, about this child. Um, and so we ordered tests, um, which we then later found out were never done. Um, they incinerated my placenta before the tests were taken or before they were done. And there was never an explanation given for that? No. And it feels very like this is where the medical community protects itself and feels shady to me. Mm-hmm. Um, because I asked my doctor then to say, I said, could you just write me a note 
saying that you ordered those tests and they weren't done so that when I go talk to the hospital, I can say there was a breakdown here. Mm-hmm. Um, like, right. So that they know it was on the, the lab, lab or, or whatever. whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was, it was never, she never wrote it for me. Wow. Um, so then you think, well, did you not write it? Cause you didn't order the tests. Or did you just forget? Or is this an innocent mistake? Or is this a manipulation? Or, you know, it's like yeah. you just lose trust mm-hmm. in the whole process. Right. Um, yeah, so we had that. And when we went home, it was just, like, numb. Right? Sure. You just, um, but you still have all these things to do. The first couple weeks... You have so many decisions to make. Like, do you want an obituary? Do you want to post it? Do you want it, like, published? Do you want a funeral? Or do you want a memorial? Or, and if you want one, what songs do you want? What, what, you know, you have to plan a whole funeral for this child who no one got to meet. So, the first, like, week or two is so full of things. That you just kind of go on autopilot. I'm sure, yeah. And try and do the things. Get through them, yeah. And we, and then when that's over, you just kind of, like, you're just kind of, like, unmoored. Like, you don't. Right. What do you do next? Because you expected to be caring for a small child. And now all that time is just open. Yeah. And unfilled. Yeah. Yeah. But as far as, like, the medical stuff goes, we had so many things during that, during the immediate delivery and stuff that were mishandled. Mm -hmm. And then several things afterwards that were mishandled. So, like, like, I had really big clots. So I had to go in. And you go in and they tried to take me into the ultrasound room where all the baby stuff happens. And I'm like, had a panic attack in the hallway going, I'm not going in there. Yeah. She's like, Oh my God, I didn't even think of it. We have a clinical room. I can take you in there. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Um, and then later saw the OB for, you know, my checkup from the clots just to check up and was put in a room alone because you can't have anyone with you because of covid yeah um and they put me in a room right next to the ultrasound room and you can hear through the walls so i mean they're alone listening to someone else's son's heartbeat you know and um you know then then at my next appointment with my ob i finally saw my ob and said you know what here's the big the hundred dollar question right the yeah what happened what do you think happened right and found out that none of the tests were done so we don't have any chromosomal explanation um and she's like I don't even want to tell you what we think happened and I was like well I need to know so great I'm just gonna walk out with that answer right thanks um and she's like we think you had a high blood sugar and stopped his heart. And 
I was like, it doesn't make sense because I have a continuous glucose monitor so I can see where my blood sugars were at all times Mm -hmm. for the weeks leading up to his demise and didn't have, and my endocrinologist had looked at all of my blood sugars and come up to see me before we delivered him. And he had come into the room and looked at me and said, I've been Well, he looked at me and then he looked at my husband and said, I've been right where you are. And then he looked at me and said, I need you to know that you did not do this. Yeah. Thank you. Your blood sugars and your diabetic care did not do this. Yeah. So when that was the explanation my OB gave me, it was like, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. Yeah. So we then asked for a second opinion and all my stuff was sent to a different um, MFM who was the one I wanted to be taken care of in the first place. Mm -hmm. And we met with him and he said, what did they tell you? Mm -hmm. And I told them and he said, that's a lazy answer. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's what happened. Yeah. And his explanation was, I think he got too big Mm -hmm. and couldn't get enough oxygen. Mm -hmm. And these are like, you know, like all speculation because we don't know he didn't have an autopsy we don't right. know for sure but you know it's just there were a whole series of things that were like if that had been done differently if my ob's office didn't close if my normal ultrasound technician had seen him would she have seen right because she looked at him the whole time he was growing right. like would they have seen a jump would right you know, if the NST had been done at my OB's office, would they have noticed his lack of movement? Did anyone even read the NST at the hospital? I don't know because no one came in. Did, you know, there's just so much yeah. that we don't know. Right. And then there was no support afterwards um, from the medical community. Yeah. But in our community, like, there was a outpouring of support um so we had this is like that underbelly of compassion right um obviously I have you know ties to this grief group already so that was there I saw them like a week after it happened Mm -hmm. um and then my mom knew an artist who um I had like this big fear of putting Owen's remains in something cold mm-hmm. and I really wanted him to have like a, like something wood, something warm. Mm-hmm. And, um, an artist friend of hers, um, offered to turn an urn for Owen. And, um, at one point Dave had decided he did want molds taken of like plaster molds taken of Owen's hands and feet There's a foundation here in Montana called the Ramsey Keller Foundation. They pay for um, funerals of infants in Montana. Mm -hmm. And they were wonderful and did some lovely things for us. And, um, you know, just, just things that, you know, people who had little to no ties to us. Showed up. You know, showed up. So, I mean... There was, there were beautiful things. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you just go through it. And I, very shortly after he was lost, started seeing a counselor 
mm-hmm. and worked through a lot of that. And um, about a year after he um, died, we started trying again. And we went back to fertility treatments. And we did um, two rounds of IUI and conceived. And now we have a little boy named Archer. And he's lovely. And he's lovely. And we have to end soon, which is so Mm -hmm. hard because I always feel like I seriously (laughs) could talk all day. Right. But the last thing I want to end with is that, like, I think there's always a temptation to like put a silver bow on top of a story like this and say like, okay, so now you have a baby and everything's fine, you know, but we talked yesterday about every single family I know who's experienced loss, Mm -hmm. whether it's infant loss, whether it's miscarriage, whether it's stillbirth, whether it's later in life, the relationship that they have to their other children shifts and changes super drastically and that there's always a heart tension of moments that are taking place in present time and then comparing Mm -hmm. that to the yeah the child that you lost so just briefly will you touch on that um yeah so emerson is eight now and he was seven when we found out that Archer was going to be coming and his immediate response this it was all very like like on top of just being hard because it's pregnancy after loss right that's so full of anxiety and fear and also joy um but the timeline of Archer's pregnancy is directly on top of Owen's pregnancy so we found out we were pregnant with Owen the week before Christmas. We found out we were pregnant with Archer two weeks before Christmas. Whoa. Archer's due date was August 8th. Um, Owen's due date was like the 5th. Oh my goodness. Um, Archer was born on the 1st of July. Owen was born the 23rd of July. You know, it was just very like directly on top. Right. So, so all the seasonal changes and everything that marks time was the same. Right. Whoa. And we're like okay, we're going to be celebrating a birth and then directly after mourning a loss. Yeah. So it was all very, like, extra hard. I'm sure. So we told Emerson we were pregnant and he was so excited. And then immediately, like, less than 10 minutes, he's, like, full of joy. And 10 minutes later said, I really hope this baby lives. Yeah. And throughout the whole pregnancy, he would preface everything he said with if this baby lives oh my gosh yep and I mean of course that makes sense for a kiddo that age yeah to keep that immediate thought Mm -hmm. so that they're prepared right so that their nervous system is prepared right but as a parent like those oh my god those things that sometimes your babies say that are like so honest are like it's what we're all feeling, right? Yeah. But we don't want to say it out loud because mm-hmm. it's super scary yeah. and sad and hard. And I feel like everyone, I feel like any anyone who's had a child after loss fears that people will assume it replaces this other child. Of course. So Emerson was very much like very clear that 
this is a new and it's not like you know he still says i have two brothers yeah and when archer was born he was holding him we were in the NICU for two weeks so he wouldn't he couldn't see Archer for two whole weeks and then when he finally was able to he said I'm really happy that I have a little brother who gets to live with us but I really miss when yeah so there it is again right just saying yeah. just putting words to the thing that everyone mm-hmm. is feeling yeah so we have you know like when I was writing my biography for right. the beginning of this episode, um, I wrote, I am a stay at home mom to three boys yeah. and then went, well, that's kind of a sticky, right. uh, like, right. cause I am, Yeah, I have three sons mm-hmm. I always will, Yep. but I'm only raising two of them. Right. But so, you're still caring so yeah. for Owen mm-hmm. because. Yeah. Because he's still with you, so you're still caring for that spirit and for that energy all the time. Yeah. I had a lot of, like, like people just offhandedly, you know, ask about, does Emerson have brothers? Do, yeah. Like, like even we went back to school a week mm-hmm. ago or two weeks ago, mm-hmm. and they send home a informational sheet mm-hmm. that they're like, please fill this out and send it back. And it's yeah. like, siblings. Yeah. There's a whole section on there, yeah. and I'm like... Okay, well, here we go. Here we go. And yep. I wrote on there and yep. just left her a note that said, hey, Emerson has a little brother who is gone. And if you bring up siblings in class, there's a solid chance he'll bring him up because we talk about him. Mm-hmm. So just be prepared for that. Well, and it's part of his story. And as his teacher, mm-hmm. they should know that that's part of his emotional right. makeup, you know. So, yeah. Okay, we have to wrap up. Dang it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love to share the story. Mm-hmm. And bonus treats that it was you. Yeah. Thank you. And we're, we will for sure link to the support group in town or any yes. other resources that you found particularly helpful so that people, whether you're a parent who's going through this, a caregiver who's going through this, or if you're someone who wants to know how to support someone going through this mm-hmm. in a way that actually is supportive for them and not your own discomfort, right? we're going to, sh- we're going to share those. Yeah. Um, so just thank you, Micah. And I just feel so honored that you shared and I know it's going to help so many people. Thank you to our incredible editor and producer, Brooke Boone Miller, for sharing her gifts with us. She's a mom and she gets it. And for that, we are grateful. If you are seeking supportive parenting resources, please visit HMHB dash lifts.org an online guide meant to connect montana families to services and programs throughout the state it's okay to not be okay help is within reach and you don't have to go this alone we promise and if mother love speaks to you as much as we hope it does please consider supporting this project by subscribing to the podcast sharing it with your network and or writing us a quick review We are passionate about getting these stories out into the world, and we need you to help us spread the word. Oh, and just one more thing. We know a lot of moms who are fired up about creating change in the maternal healthcare world. If you feel inspired to make a donation to this movement, please go to hmhb-mt.org slash 
donate or click the link in the show notes. Even just $5 has huge ripple effects. Imagine a future where mothers feel supported, seen, and heard as they carry out the most important work of their lives.